Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where are we going? Where are we come from? Who's driving this long haul truck anyway? Very excited to have our guest on today. Before I introduce our guest, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are on this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. And our other host on today is Amanda Casseri. Amanda, how are you doing? <laughs> Excellent. Amanda is a mallard. It's great to have you. And then our guest is, by the way, Amanda, you have to speak like that now for the rest of the podcast. There's just no other <laughs> option. She has a real voice. Our guest is John Robb, calling in from Berlin. John, how are you doing today? Doing all right. How about yourself? Excellent. I'm doing really good. John mentioned that he liked birds, and so immediately I got really happy. I apologize to everyone for thinking about <laughs> birds instead of open source for this entire podcast. John is a community manager, probably because that's what his contract says, which is something a lot of community managers say. Actually, they do a lot of interesting work. He works at React Flow, which is an MIT licensed open source library. They've been working on making that work without investors, which I really want to hear about. Before React Flow, he was a UX designer and a researcher, a puzzle game designer, a pizza delivery biker, and an immersive event organizer, hopefully not all at the same time. Based in Berlin, likes birds, RPG, live plays, improv comedy, playing music, all the things that normal good people like. So... John, tell me a bit about what React Flow is and does so we have an idea of like the size of its community and what you sort of do there. So React Flow is a React library that's used for building node-based UIs. So anything that kind of looks like a workflow builder or some sort of diagramming tool, there's a bunch of thousands of developers who happen to need that. And it sounds like it saves dozens or hundreds, I don't know, of hours of development time for those folks. So it seems like we have like quite a large community at this point. Yeah, when you say quite a large community, we're talking yeah. tens, dozens, thousands, millions. Community, like in our Discord, for example, we've got over 2,000. And in GitHub, we know that 3,000 public repositories use it. So beyond that, we don't have an exact number of how many people use our library, but it's a ton. <laughs> it's thousands for sure. Cool. So pretty mature. Tell me about this investment and corporate strategy. How are you making that work without investors? So I actually hopped onto the project later than the first two people who put this together. And they built this library and then they open sourced it and it started to gain some traction over about a year and a half. And as most open source libraries seem to grow, they just kept taking this feedback and kept improving it and making it into something folks wanted. And then it came to the time where they had to decide, like, is this something that we want to financially sustain ourselves with? So at that point, the two founders, Christopher Müller and Moritz Klack, they just put up a site with a couple of price tags pretty much and let's see what happens. And people started subscribing, which is wild. It's absolutely incredible. Can I ask for a clarification there, actually? Sure. It's really interesting, as you mentioned, they put up a price tag. Is this for things they could already get from open source or is it just a, like a donate button that's just renamed as pay us? Not a donate button that's renamed as pay us. The term that I saw in some article is that it's a thin crust open core model. So there's a ton of open source that's doing this where there's like a little paid service on top. And what we have is a few pro examples, as well as some one-on-one -on -one support time per month, like an hour of one-on-one -on -one support for 249 euros a month. And people can pay for that. But the core of the library is much bigger and takes much more maintenance than that tiny thin crust on the outside. So the pay button is for this thing on the outside. 
But what was fascinating is when we started doing research on the folks who already subscribed, they were talking about, oh, yeah, I subscribed to React Flow and it's a great library. They didn't talk about like, oh, I love these pro examples that you give me or I love this support. It's like, I pay for this thing and it's great. And this is the thing I use every day isn't the pro examples, but the docs and the Discord channel and the stuff that's free, which we found really interesting. Now, you've written up a blog post about this. One of the reasons I invited you on, it's at reactflow.dev slash blog slash asking for money for open source. You can also go to our show notes, of course, to read that. To clever listeners as you are, you already know that. Use the word ramen profitable. I haven't heard this before. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a little bit archaic. It's a phrase that was published by the Y Combinator folks at some point a long time ago. And they talk about ramen profitable being a company that is able to survive and eat and being basically above the black zero is what it means. So ramen profitable is the way that they say it, which I don't like that kind of terminology in the way that it's talking about this hustle culture, but in the idea that we were able to actually get above this black zero. And I didn't want to talk about us being able to say like, oh, we're making millions or something, because that's not also what we're interested in. And I apologize, John, that I wish I had read the article before we had the conversation, because now I have a bookmark and every single link in it is open in its own window. But I love that you point out, for those who haven't read it yet as well, because this just stood out to me, I couldn't help but notice the intentionality I feel like I'm reading between what like you're discussing and what's happening within React Flow, where the folks who are involved in making decisions are not trying to make decisions for the project and the community and the people based off of this, like, make as much money as fast as possible, fill our pockets up, have a nice exit. And then here is a new model that you can work with, but we're going to go hang out on a yacht in the Caribbean and we'll be fine. You'll be great. I'm sure the world will be a better place because of us. Thank you so much for giving us credit for this awesome thing we did. I'm happy for the people who execute on that. But I feel like that goes against a lot of the spirit of what folks want to be a part of when they come to this community. So maybe I'd love to hear from you as you've joined now an open source company, which is interesting. How do you feel like the conversations go when folks start to move into an area of talking about like scaling or growing? Like, is there kind of core values that you agree on that you would want to share here? I can probably best explain this with an event that I went to here in Berlin by an investment firm, and they were talking about open source and open core models. We went there and we're kind of like, oh, we're sort of in this space talking about some of the same stuff of open source and how do we make money as open source? And going to that event made me realize that people are employing the exact same methods that we are in order to get investor money. I think we've had a lot of conversations internally about what that means once you have investor money and how decision-making is affected. Part of the history of us as a group is that Christopher and Moritz were working together for years as WebKid, a successful development agency doing lots of really cool projects for really big news agencies in Germany for years, and their pace was super fast. They had Sunday night deadlines or whatever. And I think that being a part of the history of us as a company, we can respond to that and say, who do we want to follow? Do we really want to be able to make our own decisions? And what's the trade-off for getting that investor money for what we enjoy doing. So I think there's a lot of intentionality behind us talking about what do we enjoy most here at this company. And I'm not saying that we're perfect at it. I think that we're still having this conversation because we've all sort of been, I'm air quoting for podcasters, raised in this 
business culture to like seek for something bigger and something greater and to grow a company as large as one can. But the trade-off is great. And oftentimes when we talk about investor money, we don't talk about that trade-off. I appreciate the highlight that you can, in fact, optimize for autonomy and for like being able to maintain and keep your own decision making and your own interest and like in how quickly to grow. That in itself is a choice. It's not something you have to do based on someone else's schedule or expectation of you. Absolutely. And also this goes to the core concept of like endless growth as an unsustainable model. And that goes with earth and with business generally and all the above. So we can kind of look at that on our very small scale within our company and try to do it a little bit differently. I'd be curious then on that concept of like scale and growth. So when you think about that, not just from the product perspective, but from like who you think of as community or like as a part of this larger group. So as a community manager, when you're thinking about growth or about retention in a community, like how do you think about the concept of community then around this kind of more intentional and more scaled version of like an open source company? I think one question that it took me a while to bring to the table, but eventually I did bring it to the table is do we want to scale our community? Do we want it to be bigger? And what does a community do? I think it was also another event I went to and folks were talking about like having more contributors makes things more difficult for them, which was mind blowing to me. It's like, but isn't that the point of open source, right? And coming in as a newbie, like I've only been in this world for like nine months of, oh, open source is so cool because everyone can share their opinion and share their effort and then kind of coming in and hearing like maybe not in every case. So I think one of our questions was like, do we want the community to scale? What does our community look like? And also, is our community really community is one big question I have. Looking at my partner does research into like urban heat. She runs something called Urban Heat Studio, Yuli Sikorska. And she talks a lot about the Chicago heat waves. I forget what year, but there were folks in Chicago where people would die because of these extreme heats and the people who survived more had stronger interwoven communities in that area versus those who didn't. And then when we talk about like, oh, it's a community around this developer tool, like no one's surviving a heat wave. So talking about like, how do we want to grow our community? How do we want to make it better? No matter how interwoven we make our React Flow community, I don't think we're ever going to really last. It's sort of like, I think a little bit humbling to sort of think of our community as not being like this ever amazing goal of like, let's keep growing this community, this wonderful thing, but rather like, what is our community for? I love that deeply. However, there's always a tension and it's hard for me to hold this tension. I want nicer things. I would like a couch. I would like my own house. I rent. In order to do that, I need to make money, more money than I'm making right now. How do you temper personal greed and the desire to just have nice things and be a bit better off than you are with the desire to not grow? Because I often feel that those things are in contention, right? Like, why are you at work today at all? Couldn't you be on a walk? How do you hold that personally? Oh, interesting. And I know that's personally focused and not community focused, but I think it influences how we think about growth for the community is how the people in the project deal with the idea of growing at all. So first thing, I'm coming from a point of privilege. I think if we're talking about money and like how I'm doing, I am coming from a point of privilege. So being able to say that I... I'm able to take this risk. All of us are able to take this risk in this open source project. And that's already a privilege. Personally, I'm making enough money to have those things that I want. So you're talking about like greed. 
greed to me feels different than satisfying our needs and wants. Not necessarily. And so greed is a desire to have five swimming pools and a, and a Lexus, right? I'm talking more about no offensive Lexus drivers out there. I drive a Honda. I'm talking about the desire to have a nicer Honda. I used to have a Honda Element. It died. I had to buy a CRV that cost $20,000 I didn't expect to have. And now I have less savings because of it. And then when I'm looking down retirement, I just, I want to be secure. Greed is the difference between like security and like not buying another beater car because it's the cheapest car on the market. So I'm just trying to tease out how you think about personal security in the view of this project, right? Because you're talking about, we don't want the project to grow, but that also means that you, maybe I'm not being as coherent as I could be. Amanda's making notes. Amanda? I hear your tension and individual tension, but I'm also wondering if I'm hearing the question around what does it mean to have community and about growth at all costs for open source? Because I feel like I don't hear the metric in open source projects of how much is each contributor making? There's no like Mm. median income per contributor reporting metric that projects are trying to hit. Let's right? do that. Like no one's doing that. No one's like, oh, every person in our project should at least be making this much. And we want to make sure there's this median cost. That's very different than how many new contributors did we have in the month of, let's just say October, just random month of the year. Did we have a spike in new contributors in the month of October? Did we have a spike of new contributors? How long did they stay around for? Which area of the product are they working in? And are all of those new contributors basically serving just the work of creating new contributors? That's very different, right? Like, are we only doing work to onboard new people for the sake of onboarding new people because we measure our success through the size of the people who are present? I think what I'm hearing more from John is the, well, first of all, how community should be defined in terms of taking care of each other. That's not really what we're talking about here. That's kind of where I heard more of the difference of is like, first of all, this is this really a community in terms of like, if there's a heat wave, are we going to save each other and like hold up the world for each other? And if that's not true, maybe we should be doing using different words. And also, I don't know that I need to like make sure that 5,000 new people are present who weren't present a month ago. I'm with you. I don't have exact comment because there's a lot I don't know from this. Just talking about the number of contributors isn't going to help. It's just not a metric for success. And also talking about us, we're four people on a core team that are building this thing. And yes, we have some more contributors, but it's really us four. We're building it in the cathedral style of development versus the bizarre style. I'm sure there could be a whole other podcast about, is that good? Is that bad? But the four of us are getting paid and we're able to live our lives because of that. The difference between Amanda and I is that Amanda thinks in terms of systems and metrics and how do we understand the systems we have. And I think in terms of, am I Proust? I'm eating a cookie and I'm wondering about my experience to the cookie, not about the metrics of what cookies are good for other people. So it's the same question, just from two completely different angles, which is, it's crazy. Right. If the question is, what do we owe to each other? (laughs) Very different ways of answering them. Yeah. I think the thing that keeps hovering around my head that I think I do understand from this part of the conversation is being able to pay people in open source is good. People being able to paid for their work is good. Yes. And hopefully because unpaid labor is not fair and not diverse because free time is a privileged resource. Therefore, if we're talking about like, we want to get more and more money, 
And then the question is like, if we took investor money, are we then enabling more people to get paid? I don't know. And that's a question I'm going to take away. (laughs) No, I think you just summed up my entire ethos of open source in like three sentences. So good job, Amanda. So is the answer more money? Is that going to solve problems that we just need more money? Because I love the outline that you laid in the article. And I'm just curious, like, is more money going to help? Like, should we just keep flooding the system with more money? Absolutely not. (laughs) I don't know why, but definitely no. (laughs) If we want to talk about the system that we currently exist in, more money to the right people in a mindful way, in the right amount, might be good. If we could upend the whole dang system somehow. I think what I'm arguing in the article more for is that there's a lot of open source projects right now that aren't getting the money that they deserve and they could. I believe that the developers and designers and non-code contributors should be getting for the work that they do. This opinion comes from reading other people's articles. I haven't witnessed so much of this firsthand. But that idea of people not getting paid for the work that they do being standard feels wrong. Yes, I completely agree with you. (laughs) I mean, I think for the, I especially love the call out of there are many ways that people contribute and it is uneven, not only in the visibility of who that is, but also in how that is compensated. And I'll send a link later to add into the notes of people who have outlined this much better than me who are not white cis male people. Your background, like the different kinds of experiences you've had Shout out to me, open source community manager. Like there are so many skills that I can- 100%. Right? Like I looked at all the jobs that you had before and I was like, oh my gosh, you could not be more perfect for this position if I could have like created a character in a movie. I looked Um, and said, it me. So yeah. I'm curious. You said like you're kind of newer to open source space, open source company. But like based on previous experiences, which hold so many parallels to things that this group and community do, where have you felt either deja vu or something that you've been like, yes, good thing I did this before, because now I know that this is a good path forward for this thing. So I think the experience that's been most relevant to me while I've been doing community management work at this job is my co-organization of this experience design camp called Stone Soup. It's pretty much like a decentralized model of an event and there's nothing planned for the weekend. So it has like an unconference style flavor, but it's all centered around gathering design, immersive experience design. So imagine like a bunch of escape room designers, immersive theater directors, some UX designers, game designers all come together for a weekend and you have nothing planned. It's a lot of fun making dinners for each other. And so I helped co-organize the one this year. And I think one experience that has linked to this is how do you invite people and how do you know who you want to bring to the event and who not? And that was a painful experience to invite people and some people who apply are your friends and you anonymize it. And how do you make sure that like an application basically for this event where you want to make sure you have a group of people that are the right people for it to have it feel open to anyone who wants to apply and is the right person. And that means from things like, how do we bring in people who may not have the money to come? And how do we get the money from people who might be working in tech and have enough money to afford a more expensive ticket? 
how do we ask the right questions up front so that people know that the environment's going to feel safe? Or rather, we can't dictate a safe environment, but that we are setting up the boundaries to hopefully allow people to exist safely there. And it feels like with open source, there's all of these questions of how do you invite people to contribute? What are you asking people to do once they come? How do you want them to help? And how don't you want them to help? And all of those questions came together as an event organizer, especially since this event is strange too, because it's entirely co-organized. So as soon as everyone arrives at the event, people who started the event or like initiated it all step down and become participants. And there's no organizers anymore for the weekend. So that idea of like, how do you make that flexible hierarchy has been a question. And it's actually been interesting because that feels like the most open source, right? Where there are no organizers. That's the most like capital OSS (laughs) sort of thing. But the way that we're doing it, there are people who call the shots. It's not a direct democracy. We have made the explicit decision that we are going to call the shots, the design decisions, which features get added, which don't. So yeah, I think that experience really opened my brain to a lot of the things that I've seen in open source. I want to ask a kind of a pushback question almost. A lot of open source history started with large enterprises needing to work together in public without violating antitrust laws. And so you'd have very large companies working on very large projects with millions of dollars worth of developers working together with a license that was clever so that everything was publicly available, but none of the hierarchies around who had control or access to the information were open. They were all closed and they were talked about behind closed doors and you couldn't really get in, even though the code was accessible. In that case, open source does not mean anti-hierarchical, does not mean collaborative, even in the best sense of the word. You're very much in the big tent open source is awesome category. And I'm just curious what you think about the other side of open source and how you fight against it when you see it. Coming into open source, like totally that tent of Heck yeah, (laughs) open source. This is amazing. Like I'm joining this open source company. And then I just got in and it's like, oh, wait. (laughs) It's open source alone doesn't just mean good. Open source is a means to an end. By having this open, I can accomplish certain things. Having other people be able to more easily access my code can be used to get more investor money. It can be used to collaborate between military companies or it can be used to make sure we can get radios set up in places with dictatorships. I don't know. So there's this whole range of what open source can do. And I didn't know about that piece of history of that being how it started. I'm not surprised. So I wouldn't say that I'm a part of the open source's awesome period camp anymore. And that's just nine months in (laughs) to having a job in directly (laughs) in the open source world. But I definitely think when I said like capital OS open source, when I'm saying that, it's like my impression from open source before I started this, that's what it feels like from the outside. When I tell other people who are in tech about like, I'm working in open source, they're like, oh, that's so important. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) But you have to know more. Excellent answer. Thank you so much. I want to take us a bit left field because I want to talk about something that I'm sure we're not going to get to otherwise unless I just go right there. So walking through the weeds back to your blog post. You have this whole thing about acknowledging a funnel, but you don't talk about the maintainer funnel. You're talking about the purchase funnel, which is how easy it is for people to actually buy stuff from you. This is stolen from SaaS, which part of the things you mentioned, the SaaS playbook. Tell us a bit more about what you mean by the purchase funnel and how you solve that for ReactFlow. Yeah, I'm coming from the UX world, corporate UX world. How do we get people to buy the thing? How do we get people to buy insurance? How do I get people to the checkout faster? 
I think there's like some pretty nasty ways to do that, trying to get people to buy things that they may not need. I also think acknowledging how do people purchase my thing when they need it, I think that's really fair to acknowledge. For example, there's an open source library where they have on their homepage, it's like there's a button that says support us. And then there's a blank box that says, how much do you want to give us? And it seems like that's just not thought through because there's a moment where you can think, who are the people that I want money from? Is it larger organizations or individuals? Maybe an individual that's a developer can afford easily without thinking 10 euros a month out of their pocket and they might not even bat an eyelash. Companies that use it often, probably you could do 100 a month without even thinking or asking anyone. At a company like Google, I know you can do even more without asking anyone. <laughs> and if you're trying to get money from those kind of companies, then put a number in the box. And that's the funnel is saying, what are the steps? What are the decision points that a person has to make in order to donate to my open source, support my open source, buy the outer crust of my open source software? So when I'm talking about the purchase funnel, like the most obvious one is someone goes to a t-shirt shop, you click buy a t-shirt, it gets added to your cart. I go to the cart. When I'm on the cart, it says, are you ready? Does it include the shipping? You say, check out now. You get an email probably that says your order has been confirmed. You probably put in your credit card information. Just what are those steps? And I think through that article, what I'm asking is take a second to just write down what things are in that list for your open source software and be mindful about those decisions. And even better, ask people who already donate or people that you would like to donate or people that use it a lot of what they expect. It's interesting because I think this point here, what you brought up earlier is a very important difference that we use the same words, but we mean different things where support in a community may look more like mutual aid, like contributing to a community fund that there is a community governance model for to understand distribution of wealth towards people for either basic needs or community goods or community resources. But when we move into the business and the corporate aspect of finance, we like to use the same words that mean different things. So we'll still stick with community, but what is a community sponsorship? So like corporations actually can't give money, even in the United States, despite certain Supreme Court rulings, Corporations can't give money the same way that individuals can, which also means that individuals and in a company can't give money the same way that individuals can when they're not acting in a corporate interest. So I think the confluence of words that we use to feel good about being a part of open source, little words, open source, create problems when we start moving into talking about how and where finances could be moved or touched, because those are not the same two kinds of economic models. This is where Richard says I talk about systems rather than people. It's accurate. I really want to focus on what you said around how much do you want to give and support us? Because those are really, really just totally different questions. And it doesn't say there what we need. It doesn't say, actually, I need $100,000 or else I'm going to stop working this project and go work at Google. And like, if that's what you, you know, says help, what do you want to give? That's like, okay, five bucks. Like I do it to Red Cross or something, if asked, or like Wikipedia, the classic. Yep. So trying to figure that out and that messaging is so important. And it does come down a lot of times to this big confusion in terms. I really wish 
I was sitting here daydreaming. I wish there was a button that said, give X money here from a personal perspective. Or if you're at a company, here's a form that you can download right now with the press of a button that you can hand to your CTO that will tell you about what support is there, what license is there, what obligations you're coming under and where to wire the money. And that's just like a two-page document would probably solve a lot of problems, right? A hundred percent. When I came in, we would kept getting these questions about like, oh, what is this piece of information? What is this data? Like for yep. our... I don't know what these internal corporate jargon things are, but like for this organization, we need this name. And we're just like, should we just put down our name? I guess. Yeah, just put down Christopher, whatever. (laughs) Let's see what happens. And eventually we made this like Notion doc and it just has all of this company information that over time people have asked for. I would love to see that. I would love, if you could make it anonymous, that'd be amazing. Makes so much sense. It's public. Just go to our pricing page. It's on the FAQs. Oh, That's beautiful. I also work for Open Source Collective, whose job it is to make this sort of stuff easier, right? So part of what we do is we do all that for you. But what's amazing to me is that most people don't know what that means. And even on the Open Source Collective side, people email me and I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to ask the ops person again because I don't, I can't remember all that stuff. Yeah. When we're asking for money from organizations, we have to think about what happens inside of that organization. It's not just like, oh, I'm getting paid by Microsoft, whatever. It's like, who inside of Microsoft is paying? Who sees the fact that they can pay? There's probably some developer at some point that's like, oh, I kind of want to like migrate to a better tool because doing this layout is really hard. They open up your library, they download it. And at some point along the line, they might notice in the docs or something that there is a pro version. They are not the ones with the credit card. How do you get this to the people with the credit card? And how do you give them all the information that they need? And how do you help that person inside of the company who likes you and your product to convince their manager to pay for this thing. That's going back to the question of the funnel of like, it's not just what's on your website, but also who's the person in the organization that you want paying you what's happening inside there. I love that you're bringing up this distinction as well, because I feel like you're bringing the nuance to the place that there's the idea in SaaS and software as a service business. It's like either you're aiming for the person who's going to have a credit card because they're paying for one seat, the one person, right? But you're assuming that they're the one who's paying for your point. Like there's an assumption like, oh yeah, that person just signs up and it's, and then there's the one where it's like, call us because it's for X thousand people or whatever. But I love that you're acknowledging like, that's not really the way it works. And like for our project and for the thin crust model, which I also just love that terminology, like here's really where we're trying to make it easy for people to get that yes. And making it easy for them to understand what they're buying into. What are you joining and being a part of? And it's not just this tick list. Like it's these things. Like these are the things we're actually telling you we need you to support for Richard's point. And here's the list of things you get along with that. Not just some generic support us because it feels good. Totally. I also want to come back, Richard, to something that you said about, oh, I wish that there's something for individuals and something for organizations or here's that document for organizations. It reminded me of something else that I used when we were co-organizing the Stone Soup event. There's this great diagram, which I'll also send you a link for, where there are three bottles and it's called the personal financial situation evaluation, something like this. And it's for signing up for an event or something similar to give yourself an idea of where are you in terms of your financial situation. So on the right, there's a full green bottle and it's like, I can take multiple vacations of multiple weeks per year. 
And the middle bottle has something like, I can take a few days off. Sometimes I worry about rent. And the left bottle says, I can't take any vacation. I worry about rent most months. And maybe this isn't quite related to our conversation, but I love that diagram. And if we could just run a lot of things through, that would be wonderful. That doesn't seem like it's how it works. It worked perfectly for the event that we ran, which was amazing. It was incredible how it perfectly worked out in the end, as if we only offered one price is ridiculous. I'll have to send you that link because it's one of my favorite things. Please do. I actually was working on that exact problem yesterday when I was trying to come up with a matrix for a board survey to ask the board of the nonprofit Nature Center I work on, how do we diversify our board? And I was like trying to figure out how do I ask people how many millions of dollars or zeros of dollars do you have? I can't ask that. And then I ended up with like, I'm median in my county. I'm above median in my county and I'm very secure. And like, that was just mm-hmm. the green bottle, right? It was just like, yeah, I don't need to worry about that. This is a much more eloquent solution. John, that's awesome. Unfortunately, we are running up on time, which really sucks because I feel like no. there's so much more we could have talked about if we had hours and hours. Given that you are on the internet, where can people learn more about you and about ReactFlow? You can learn more about ReactFlow from reactflow.dev. And I'm very hesitant at the moment of like, where can you learn more about me? You can follow me on Twitter at John Rob JR. It's like John Rob Jr. I don't post there. I'm also on Mastodon at John Rob Jr. at something social. <laughs> Mastodon.social. If you want to talk to me, send me an email at J O H N H R O B B at gmail.com. That's the best way to get in touch with me at this point. Thank you so much. Don't leap yet. Long time listeners will know this is Spotlight. This is the part of the show where we get to highlight cool projects, people, or things that we feel like just need a bit more light put on them. Amanda, what is your Spotlight today? So I'm going to deviate from my normal, let me tell you about a research paper in my pile or something that I've read that I find inspiring, to now a whole series of talks that I have not yet listened to. I just found out from someone earlier today there is a conference called CSVConch which is a community conference for data makers everywhere is the conference title. I've only looked at the page and seen who the keynote speakers were as of like two weeks ago. And it's already a panel I greatly admire, including Dr. Alex Hanna. So I'm really excited to dive into talks, papers, and things that are posted from CSB Couch, and then hopefully maybe check it out sometime soon, like next year. The CSV or CSB? CSV, like the CSV. open file yep. structure. Yeah, CSV Couch. Yep. Glad you finally discovered that comp. It is your people. They are amazing people who go there. So super awesome. I'm going to deviate from my normal, I hate podcasts and never listen to them and talk about the one podcast I actually regularly listen to, which is the ABA podcast. This is the American Birding Association podcast with Nate Swick. If you like learning about what cool birds have landed in America and also cool research and really cool interviews with scientists talking about bird conservation and research is the best podcast. I wish he had much better music for his intros and outros. I really hate the music he chose, but the content is ace. So ABA American Birding Podcast. Thank you so much, Nate. John, what is your spotlight today? What a beautiful way to begin and end the podcast on birds. My spotlight for the day is the Hippocratic License 3.0. So it's at firstdonoharm.dev. And we just implemented it in our terms of service, actually, so that we can reject people who violate human rights and not support them or take their money in an easy way. So it's super nice. It's done by the Organizational for Ethical Open Source, for Ethical Source and Corporate Accountability Lab. And you can check all of these little boxes 
to say what things you want in your version or not. Like if you want ecocide in your terms of service or code of conduct, you can put a little check mark next to it. Super cool work. And it sounds like they're still doing work on it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Big Ten open source is the best type of open source. John, it's been really great having you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Guests, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any thoughts on this podcast, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at sustainedoss.org. This will go to all the hosts. Please email us. No one ever does. If you hear this, send me a hello. I would thank you so much. I'll send you a sticker. You can go to sustainedoss.org for more. We have a discourse there. You can also go to podcast.sustainedoss.org to see other podcasts and download the show notes for this one, of course. And like this podcast, wherever podcasts are bought and souls, we really appreciate it. And tell your friends, we don't do any advertising. So it's all about you. That's right. Literally you. Uncle Sam wants you to talk about the Sustained podcast. And with that, John, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Good luck with React Flow. And go see some birds. You too. 